This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Simi today. Here's your hot question of the day. One of the big stories, the happy stories we had this week was the big lotto win uh, by that retired fisherman there in Richmond, Joseph Catalytic. Joseph, give me a call, man. Send me an email. I don't want your money. I just want to talk to you. Maybe just made a little bit of money. No, I'm just kidding. I don't want your money. I just want to talk to you. Here's the thing. 60 million bucks, right? I mean, that is, I don't know. How do you put your head around that amount of money? Can you imagine? Can you imagine winning this much loot? That'd be incredible. Do you think that 60 million is almost like overkill like it's almost too much i wouldn't mind just winning like a 10 grand 100 grand maybe just a million you know just a flat million would be nice but 60 million like some people win big lottery scores like that and it ruins their lives you know i mean they just go crazy they lose they just lose their minds have terrible things happen and it can be kind of a curse in some ways so here's the hot question of the day a retired fisherman in Richmond, has reeled in the catch of a lifetime, the record Lotto Max jackpot, $60 million. Would you say there's such a thing as having too much money? Too much money. Would you say, yes, money can cause problems? You know what they say, it's the root of all evil, I've heard. Or would you say that, no, make it rain. Let's have fun. Let's spend money. Party on. Here's how you can vote on that today. At CKNW on Twitter. That's where you'll find the hot question of the day. At CKNW on Twitter. While you're there, give me a follow, please, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H. Mike Smith News on Twitter. I'll retweet the hot questions. You'll find it there, too. Phone me on the buzz line today. Leave me a voicemail and tell me what you think. Is $60 million in some ways too much money? 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. The federally owned Trans Mountain Corporation announced yesterday it has issued notice to proceed directives to its contractors. That means it's mobilizing its workforce. It's getting ready to put the shovels in the ground they are getting ready to start building this pipeline again. Some of the construction set, uh, set to start this month and next month includes work in Alberta. Now, of course, the pipeline very popular there in Alberta, so probably not a lot of problems there. But there will also be construction starting soon in British Columbia, especially at the Burnaby Terminal uh, of the uh, pipeline project. Let's talk about this now with the great panel. Chris Gardner is the president of the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association. He supports the pipeline. Hi, Chris. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Doing well, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Peter McCarthy is here as well. He's a climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. He's opposed to the pipeline. Hi, Peter. Hi, thanks for having me. Guys, thanks for coming on. Chris, let me go to you first. Now, you're a big, you're a big supporter of this pipeline. You must be happy. I know a lot of your guys probably get work on this pipeline, right? 
Yeah, you know, I've just I was up in Fort St. John two weeks ago. Uh, two Fort Fort St. John based companies, Terraris Pipeline, Macro Pipeline, are going to be building two sections of the uh, of the seven sections of the pipeline. They're going to be ramping up and hiring uh, over a thousand workers, and um, so they're excited. And it shows the regional distribution of jobs. Uh, throughout the province as a result of this project. And so it's good news that construction is starting. The bad news is that it has taken so long. And um, and then we've lost opportunities in, in British Columbia and Canada as a result of that. The CEO of the Royal Bank of Canada recently said over the last two years, Canada has lost $100 billion in investment because our energy sector has been stalled because of the right. policies of both Ottawa and Victoria. Is, is it too early to celebrate, though? I mean, if you're a supporter of this pipeline, I mean, I wonder if people are a little afraid to start saying, you know, it, it's party time uh, when there's been so many disappointments in the past, like stuff starts getting built and then it gets cancelled, it gets stopped by the courts, and is it going to go forward this time, do you think, or is this going to be another, like another false start? Well, hopefully. I mean, the, the, the B.C. Court of Appeal was very clear, uh, you know, when they ruled 5 nothing uh, against the government of British Columbia, uh, though this was federally regulated and they couldn't, uh, and effectively what they were trying to do is stop the pipeline. And, and, you know, but the government is continuing on with its legal action, and this sends yeah. a very negative signal to not only uh, investors can, looking at this project, but other projects. And, you know, we are ranked 53 in the world in terms of competitiveness and regulation, um, and that's hurting our economy. It's costing us jobs. And um, while we continue to import okay. oil uh, from uh, jurisdictions like Saudi Arabia and, uh, and Nigeria, when we've got more than okay. enough oil here to supply our needs. Okay, let me go to Peter McCarthy from the Wilderness Committee. Peter, uh, you got the company saying, we're gung-ho, we're ready to go, we're ready to start to get, get to work here. Is this fight over? I mean, are the lawsuits over? The company's going to put a shovel in the ground? Is the fight over? Absolutely not. You know, there's still thousands of people willing to uh, stand in the way of construction. There's uh, even more court cases this time around than the last time as another First Nation has joined. Um, there's the election coming up, which could result in a minority government when uh, both the parties that could potentially form government are opposed to the pipeline. Uh, we still got a lot of fight left in us. Um, and, you know, I don't think this is going anywhere. I think you know, maybe they start construction, maybe they get a little bit done, maybe they're slowed down along the way by protesters. Um, but I think this will this will be kicked back and forth in the courts for a long time. And the truth is, every delay to this pipeline, the economics and the business case, um, and really the prospects of the oil and gas industry in a world that's moving off of fossil fuels get worse every day. And so... Okay. Okay, you know, Peter, think, Peter, when I you say, we'll when, when you bring up the, the federal election... You know, I mean, the, the two, there's only really two possible outcomes in this election is either Trudeau is going to remain prime minister or Andrew Scheer is going to be the prime minister, and they both supposedly support the pipeline. Right? They do, um, but I think so, we are almost certainly headed towards a minority government where they don't actually have enough seats to form government in power because uh, they're neck and neck in the polls right now. And so both the Green Party and the NDP are opposed to this pipeline, have been very clear they don't want it to get built. And I think, you know, a, a climate plan that those parties could support would not include this pipeline. And, and that's, I think, the common ground between potentially um, Prime Minister Trudeau and the other two parties is that they do want to see climate action and they could make this a condition of it. OK, that's a very interesting idea there. Chris, what do you think of that? I mean, if we do end up with a minority government, do you think the Greens, if the Greens or the NDP or both of them are holding the balance of power, do they turn the screws on 
Trudeau maybe to support him and say, you got to cancel this pipeline. I can't see Trudeau doing that. I mean, I don't see how Trudeau would cancel this pipeline. Or does he Or does he maybe do it if, he, if it means he's going to, the only way he can cling to power? Well, you know, I, I, you know, uh, anything's possible. But I would say yeah. this. I would agree with you that I think it's highly unlikely at this point that uh, if Trudeau were in a minority government, he would he would backpedal on this. Because we've gone from, and how ridiculous is this, we've gone from a situation where a private sector company was prepared to invest $7.5 billion in our economy. Um, and because of the delays um, and, and all of the, the, the controversy around the pipeline, they decided they couldn't get this, this, this project built. So the government of Canada stepped in, spent $4.5 billion of taxpayer money to buy the, pipe, the existing pipeline, and now yeah. they're going to spend $7.5 billion of taxpayer money to build the pipeline. That is completely insane. In no other jurisdiction in the world would this happen. And so it's costing taxpayers dollars. It, we're losing opportunities because of these delays and protests. And what the protesters don't understand is that there is a time for input and for consultation. But at some point in time, you have to move forward. Investors have to have the certainty that if they've gone through the process, met all the requirements, and the project is approved, it will be built. Um, And the challenge of the protesters, they're just focused on one outcome and one outcome only, and that's getting to know. Peter McCarthy, what do you say to that? Well, you know, I, I think I should remind people that this pipeline never went through a proper environmental review. It went through the National Energy Board's rigged process where the Harper government had tried to set things up so that they could rubber stamp it as fast as possible. People don't go out and stand in front of a bulldozer when they feel like they've been heard. But unfortunately, the National Energy Board completely disregarded people. It's now been scrapped. The government has admitted that that process was a complete failure, but are continuing on with this pipeline anyway. And um, all I can say is at some point... This is going to start costing us so much money that it doesn't make sense anymore. It's yeah. now $9 billion. Yeah. I think, though, that for groups like your own, Peter, or, or other environmental groups that are opposed to this project, I'm not sure there's there's any regulatory process that you guys would accept. I mean, can you? is there any circumstances under which you would turn around and say, okay, that was an adequate environmental assessment of this project? we support it now no i mean you know it doesn't they could consult for the next century and you guys would not support it if they if i mean first of all if indigenous communities were on side because their consent uh from our point of view is required for this project but if they could show us that canada could actually meet its climate targets um you know the ones we committed to in paris while building this thing uh, and increasing the size of the tar sands, you know, that that would make it a lot harder for us to oppose this project. But mm. the truth is they've just sort of papered over everything. And um, they they still haven't grappled with the fact that we have these two divergent policy um, priorities where, hey, we want to expand the tar sands by 20%, and also we want to meet uh, our Paris Agreement targets and reduce emissions. And they just don't square. Chris Gardner, what do you say to that? Well, every single First Nation whose territory is the pipeline is going to be built through has signed on uh, with Kinder Morgan uh, for a benefits agreement. The second thing is that we've got First Nations now in negotiations with the federal government to buy part of the pipeline. Um, So the First Nations who are most directly impacted are supporting this pipeline. And on our climate plan, the reality is this. Um, If we're going to make significant efforts to change the trajectory in which the planet is on. We need China, 
India, the United States, and Russia to get with the program because yeah. we have you know less than one percent of the population, less than two percent of, of, of emissions. That's where the real fight has to be. We have to do our part as Canada, but we can okay. do our part by by harnessing our resources in the most sustainable way possible, which is what we do: shipping LNG to China and India. Okay and helping move them off heavy oil. Okay, Peter McCarthy, real quick, and then we got to take a quick commercial break, but I, I think you probably, you want to push back on that, what what uh, Chris said there about for First Nations supporting the project? First Nations, every First Nations reserve that the pipeline crosses is supportive of the project because that is yeah. a requirement for the project to move forward. But their territory, two-thirds of the First Nations that were consulted because this project impacts their territories have not given their consent. Um, and, and the truth is, all, all it takes is one. Um, and rightfully, they should be able to stop a project. Uh, you know, you can build 97% of a pipeline, but it's not a very good pipeline. So, so you think, like, hang on a sec, if, if you've got like 100 First Nations and 99 of them support the project and one of them doesn't, you're saying that that should be the death knell for the project, that one First Nation out of 100 can stop a project. Is that what you're saying? They, they have the right to give consent for what's happening on their territories. If the pipeline can find another territory, uh, can change its route, then, you know, maybe that's acceptable. But, you know, you can't, in the same way that if you were in Europe and France wanted to build a highway all across the country, you can't just, um, you have to get everybody on side. And, and okay. that's how the UN Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples works. Okay, Chris, do you want to comment real quickly on that? Well, I would say that's why we have a federal government that makes um, decisions in the national interest. And it's the same way with First Nations. You can't have one First Nation holding up projects that will benefit every other First Nation, and, and residents of Canada and British Columbia. So at some point, there is a national and provincial interest that has to prevail uh, over yeah. the parochial interests of one group, group or one community. Okay. My guest, Chris Gardner, Independent Contractors, Peter McCarthy, uh, Wilderness Committee. Uh, Peter, with the, with, in terms of the, uh, the fight against this pipeline now, you guys obviously are not going to give up the fight to try and stop it. What do you think is the more likely path to success for your side, fighting it in the courts or fighting it on the ground with protests and standing in front of bulldozers? You know, I, I, I think it's going to take all tactics to stop this. Um, you know, we certainly think that there's a very strong case for uh, the First Nations and environmental groups who did take the project to court. Um, but in the meantime, you know, as, as construction starts and proceeds, um, there will be people out to meet them. And, and that's just as important because uh, we know that the courts will take into consideration if the pipeline's already half built um, by the time it's there. So you, really, we're throwing everything we got at it. What do you think the optics will be, uh, Peter, if they start construction and there's construction going on during an election campaign? Like, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine, like, Imagine if there's protests or you got TV photos of like native elders being led away from a from a blockade or something right in the middle of an election campaign. Do you think that's good or bad for Trudeau? Oh, it's going to be ugly. I, I can't believe that he uh, he tried this before an election. Um, yeah, it's it, people being uh, being dragged off of their own territory uh, for a government that is so. Um, you know, signals so much about how it's so committed to reconciliation and uh, climate change. To be dragging people out of the way of the pipeline during an election is going to be it's going to be a disaster for them. Uh, yeah, I'm just wondering about that, Chris Gardner. What do you think of that? I think Trudeau wants to look tough on this. Huh? Maybe he's not that worried about that kind of that possibility. But what are your thoughts? 
Well, I think that what, what the, the federal government's been trying to do is, is, is play this balancing act. And I think, unfortunately, at some point, you've got to make a decision. And he's, and he's, he's, he's dragged this out for so long. Um, we've lost opportunity in terms of jobs and investment in the economy. Uh, this project should have been well underway. It should be halfway built by now. And so if there are repercussions uh, that he will face electorally, it's, it's, uh, it's of his own doing. Um, you know, he, he, he bought the pipeline, spent $4.5 billion of taxpayer to buy the pipeline. He's spending another $9 billion in taxpayer dollars to build the pipeline, which is insane considering we had a private sector company ready to make this investment. Um, and then on the other hand, he said, we're going to pass Bill C-48, the tanker ban on the, uh, the west coast of British Columbia, and Bill C-69, which is a new regulatory framework to review uh, infrastructure, major infrastructure projects. And basically what he's saying is, this is the last pipeline that will ever be built. So if you don't support Kinder Morgan, just, you know, take it easy because we, we've done all, this, all these other uh, initiatives for you. So I think, unfortunately, it's the story of Canada. That's why we're slipping in terms of competitiveness. Well, That's why we've lost $100 billion investment in the last two years, according okay, to RBC. Okay, guys, we just got two minutes left here. Chris, let me ask you to make a prediction. Do you predict this pipeline will get built? Do you, are you confident the pipe's going to go in the ground, this project's going to get completed? Yes, I am. D- despite all the setbacks, despite the fights that have been going on, despite the years of delays, despite all these yeah, other pipelines getting, you know, getting it's, canceled? It's all frustrating, but ultimately there has to be respect for the rule of law. And, uh, and a process. Uh, this, this, is, this, this project has been bandered about politically and, and, and opposed by activists, not, as to your point, not interested in having a constructive dialogue about responsible resource development, but by keeping our resources in the ground. Um, and, uh, and that's hurting Canada, it's hurting communities, it's hurting families, it's hurting working Canadians. Okay, Peter, Peter McCarthy from the Wilderness Committee, will the pipeline get built? No, I think it'll be uh, years to come of kicking this down the road when really we should be having the conversation of how we're going to build an economy that will actually last. Um, so eventually this, uh, this story is just going to wind up when by the time you know it ends, nobody will be ever thinking about building a pipeline ever again. But even though the polls consistently show that most people want the pipeline, they support it, including most people in British Columbia. Yeah, I mean, I think the polls have shifted over and over again. I think when people, you know, there's been a $30 million ad campaign from the government of Alberta to try and convince people of that fact. But I think when people hear the reasons why people are willing to go to such lengths to stop this pipeline, they'll come around. Guys, I want to thank both of you for coming on the show today. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it. That's Chris Gardner from the Independent Contractors Association. A lot of his members working on that pipeline. He, he of course, supports it. Peter MacArthur, he's a a climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. He is opposed to the pipeline. The pipeline company is saying they're getting ready to start building again. We'll see if the pipeline goes through this time. To Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum's plan to replace the RCMP with a local municipal police force. So the approval is given from the B.C. government the, the RCMP will be replaced by a municipal police force. But here's the other interesting element of the announcement today. The government effectively taking over the transition of this. The, uh, they will bring in a joint transition committee. It will be chaired by 
Wally Opal, the former attorney general from B.C., who always seems to pop up in these high-pressure situations for some reason or another. Here comes Wally again. He's going to take over this transition committee to bring in a local police force to the city of Surrey. So that's your big story at this hour. The green light is given for a local police force in the city of Surrey. Cash Heed is the former solicitor general in B.C. He's a former police chief himself. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Cash. My pleasure, Mike. What what are your thoughts on this breaking breaking news here? It's it's good news for the residents of Surrey. It's good news for businesses in Surrey and people that visit uh, Surrey. So I think this is uh, positive. I think the fact that uh, it uh, in a short period of time the green light was given. I thought, and you and I talked about this, Mike, about the fact that there may be a few roadblocks or hiccups along the way, and those were somewhat internal hiccups within the municipal government in Surrey. But overall, from the provincial government's point of view, uh, I think uh, it went relatively smoothly. Uh, McCallum has lost a few of his own councillors down there. He's had a few defections from his Safe Surrey coalition from people who criticized this police plan. Uh, Some of the councillors thought there was not enough consultation. Some thought it was too expensive. Some thought there were not enough cops going to be on the street with this new municipal police force. That, for a while, looked like it might threaten McCallum's ability here to deliver on this promise here. But this has got to be good news for McCallum here today that the provincial government is saying, no, we're giving you the green light. You can go ahead and do this. It is very good news, and uh, there's a couple of factors here. Uh, you and I talked about the fact that this would be a political decision at the end of the day. I think it's highly political, not only from a local government point of view, but certainly from a provincial and federal government uh, point of view in this. Now, we recognize that people were thinking about the old police model. And with Kurt Griffiths involved, Dr. Griffiths uh, putting this together, and Dr. Terry Waterhouse is putting this together, you know they were going to build a contemporary police model. I hope at the end of the day, this committee, which I don't know why the government did that, that's one aspect I'm kind of concerned about, will understand that we're building a new contemporary police model. It may be a tiered policing system, but it will better deliver an effective, efficient, and accountable police service for Surrey. Okay, what are some of the roadblocks or potential problems or challenges in in going through this transition? This is such a major, major overhaul of police services in the city of Surrey. What do you think going to be kind of the sort of the toughest roadblocks or hurdles to get over here and getting this done? Well, they got over the uh, largest roadblock, and that is getting the green light from the provincial government. I think you're going to get some resistance from the the federal force that's on contract there right now. Hopefully, Mike, and we talked about this earlier, there was some resistance in providing adequate information or sufficient information to Dr. Grievous on this transition plan. So I'm hoping that the federal government and the Minister of Public Safety for the federal government realizes that this is happening, and let's work together to make sure we have a smooth transition plan because it'll only benefit, as I mentioned, the people that uh, live, work, and uh, play in Surrey. Okay, do you think that most of the Mounties who work for the Surrey RCMP right now, do you think a majority of those guys would transition over and join a municipal police force, or do you think they'll have to go out and find new officers? I think they'll get a significant amount of people that are currently policing Surrey that will transition over. The benefit of Surrey Municipal Police Service is the fact that they can recruit all over Canada of qualified applicants. So the 55, 60,000 officers that work in Canada are actually a recruitment pool for them. So you're going to get a large, experienced group of people 
serving the citizens of Surrey. So it's just not the local detachment. You're going to get people from Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton. You're going to get people from the federal force all across Canada and those police agencies that have highly experienced individuals. Okay, I'm speaking to Kashid, as the former Solicitor General for BC, a former police chief himself. We're talking about the approval given in this hour by the BC government for a local municipal police force in the city of Surrey to replace the RCMP. Do you think that, Cash, other police forces in the Lower Mainland should be worried about a new Surrey municipal police force maybe stealing some of their officers? Like, I've, I've heard that from the city of Vancouver, for example. There may be Vancouver cops who are currently working for the Vancouver Police Department, but a lot of them live in surrey because they you know who can afford to live in vancouver they got to live in surrey or somewhere else so i wonder if some of these vancouver cops might say you know what i think i'm going to join up and be a surrey police officer here and work closer to home is that could that be a problem that you will get that now vancouver has a large recruitment applicant pool so i don't think they're as concerned i think where some of the concerns will come from of these smaller municipal police agencies, such as West Van, where I was the chief, losing some experienced officers. I think there's some detachments policed by the RCMP uh, that will lose some people. I think, more importantly, Mike, we have to look at the fact, are we going to get a perpetuating effect here where other municipal uh, agencies uh, come on board, other municipalities look at their own independent municipal. You know I'm a fan of the metro system, but I think these uh, police agencies need to embrace what Syria is uh, doing. They need to work together to ensure we have a smooth transition. Okay, I got a bit of a funky cell phone connection there with you, Cash. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a quick break here with Cash, and we'll try and clean up uh, the phone connection with him, and we can continue our conversation. Let me just update you real quickly. Uh, on the breaking news of this hour, once again, the B.C. government has given the green light to a local municipal police force in the city of Surrey. They are bringing in Wally Opal, the former solicitor general, uh, to oversee a transition committee. So Wally Opal will be the head of this uh, effort to transition away from the RCMP to a local police force in the city of Surrey. There's going to be a lot of work there to do. I mean, you got human resources challenges. You got the pensions of these Mounties. That still has never been adequately explained to me or to, I think to anybody else how they're going to deal with that. If you get some of these RCMP officers suddenly go over to a municipal police force, what happens to their pension? IT systems. They got to bring in a brand new computer system there for a municipal police force. How much is that going to cost? How long is it going to take? I think one of the realities of this now is there could be possibly a delay in getting a local force up and running. Let's go back to Cash. Do you think there could be a a delay, Cash, in getting a local police force up and running? Because I know, you know, McCallum had been talking about a pretty quick timeline here to turn this around. They wanted to get a chief in place by this fall and maybe a new force up and running uh, by early next year. Is that possible? I think it's absolutely possible because we we have to understand that the infrastructure is already owned by Surrey. For example, uh, the buildings, the equipment and all that, of course, there's going to be some compensation on the percentage to the RCMP. But when you talk about the records management system, the BC Prime is already in place. That was brought in by the provincial government many years ago, and all agencies are on that system. We have the ECOM system, which is basically a regional system, so the RCMP dispatch system could easily transition over. And I know, Michael, that all of those 
uh, somewhat regional and provincial entities have already done their research and have determined what the transition would be. So Doug McKelm is very persistent, and I believe he will meet his timeline again. It's all going to be dependent upon uh, the resistance from the current uh, police agency in Surrey. As we continue to cover and analyze the breaking story at this hour, the B.C. government gives the green light to a local municipal police force in the city of Surrey to replace the RCMP. Let's check in now with an opposition councillor there down at Surrey City Hall. Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis joins me now. Hi, councillor. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, Mike. Councillor, you've been very critical of this plan to get rid of the RCMP and go to a local police force. The provincial government is now giving the green light to the plan. Are you disappointed? Well, I'm very disappointed in the fact that the citizens of Surrey have not been consulted. Clearly, it's the biggest decision that we certainly are going to make as a council and as most people will face in their lifetime. I think it's very, very important still that the uh, residents of Surrey be heard and uh, be offered the opportunity to participate in a referendum. Okay, well, we just heard the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth, he was just asked if there should be a referendum in the city of Surrey, and he said no. How do you react to that? Well, I think I would really hope that as Minister, or I shouldn't say Minister, but Mr. Opal, uh, as he's moving forward with the uh, task force, however he does it, that he engages the residents of Surrey. It's very important. As we all know, it's a very divisive topic uh, in Surrey, and I think the residents who are paying the bill at the end need to be heard. Uh, It's very critical that we don't just change badges for the sake of changing badges, that in the end of the day, we have a better policing model. But didn't we already have a referendum on this? It was called the municipal election, right? And 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 Doug McCallum went forward with his party with a very clear promise to get rid of the RCMP and bring in a municipal police force instead, and he won. I mean, that's your referendum, isn't it? No, that's not a referendum, Mike. Well, it's, it's better than a referendum. It's an election. Well, it's an election of which he got 13% of the uh, eligible voters, 13%... Uh, it certainly does not give anybody a clear mandate. And quite frankly, um, because someone voted for, uh, the, you know, for uh, Mayor McCallum does not necessarily mean that they were voting for or against policing. They could have liked his position on SkyTrain. They could have decided that they just wanted to change in government. There's a multitude of reasons as why people uh, would vote for him. And thir- certainly 13% of the uh, eligible voters casting a ballot in his way is not a clear mandate that we should be moving ahead with a new police force. Okay, I'm speaking to Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis. Uh, Councillor, will the city of Surrey be more safe or less safe with a municipal police force instead of the RCMP? If you don't change the policing, uh, the policing model, nothing will change. It's been very clear from the outset whether or not we have the RCMP or a Surrey police force. We need more, uh, we need more people on the street. We are way yeah. underserved by the number of members we have. We have 843 members right now. Vancouver has over 1,400. We right. are over 80% of the size of the population, and we are as big as Vancouver, Burnaby, and Richmond combined, so clearly we are underserved by the number of police officers. We need at least 300 more. Okay, and this plan is not going to deliver anywhere near that. Well, I'm hoping that as the task force moves forward, um, I hear that they're going to move uh, 
through it in a very methodical um, and in a not in a rushed way. I hope one of the things that will come to light is that we need more police officers. We need another 300. We also need some good programming to get kids that are at risk uh, before they enter into a gang lifestyle. Clearly, that's an issue yeah. not just for Surrey, but throughout the Lower Mainland and throughout British Columbia. When we start talking about the number of cops in the city of Surrey, like you mentioned, 843, that's the current official number, the complement of the RCMP officers in the city right now. This plan from Mayor Doug McCallum for a municipal police force would have 805 local municipal police officers that's obviously a lower number but mccallum has defended that by saying hang on a second a lot of those rcmp positions right now are vacant he said there are 51 vacant positions here right now so effectively there's only 792 that's mounties not correct, uh, mike uh, there's 843 members at any point in time no. Uh, serving Surrey. What the RCMP currently does is if there are vacancies, if there are people that are off on LTD or vacation, they backfill them from other um, de- detachments and from other uh, resources. With the Surrey City Police having 805 members, if people are away on vacation or on long-term disability or whatever it might be, that's all we have. So theoretically, if you're going to use the 51 number, uh, we could be yeah. down almost 90 members, and clearly that is not acceptable. And in fact, when we, it will actually cost us more to have a, a municipal police force. Okay, what about the cost of a municipal police force? Let's talk about that for a second. The plan that McCallum rolled out here, $192.5 million. That would be the year one cost of a, a new municipal police force. He says that's just a shade under 11% more than what the RCMP would cost uh, to, to keep the RCMP. Are you buying those numbers? Is, is this only going to cost 11% more money for a local force? Absolutely, I'm not buying those numbers. I've asked uh, to see a detailed budget so I could look at the numbers and see how he's arrived at that. It's not been made available to me. It's not been made available to the province. Uh, so I have no idea how he's arrived at that. And the other piece that he's not talking about is what the transition costs are going to be. That's another number, yeah. and that's a number... Yeah that uh, the residents of Surrey are going to have to uh, pay as well. What, so, what, could, what could some of those big transition costs be? What, could, what does that include? Well, it includes, uh, uh, for one thing, um, the members, uh, municipal police officers, earn somewhere between 15 and 20% more in terms of their co- total compensation. So we have that. We're going to have parallel police forces running at... Uh, you know, uh, as we transition over, we have training to do. We have the IT. We have liability insurance because currently um, the liability is handled through the RCMP, not by the city. So we have that additional cost. Uh, we have to outfit new members. We've got to get new uniforms. All of that. There's just the list goes on and on and on. Okay. Do you therefore think that they should have kept the RCMP? They shouldn't be doing this. Just keep the RCMP. I don't think we should be changing badges for the sake of changing badges. That makes no sense. Uh, why would you change a badge or change a badge on a uniform to do the same thing and, and it costs more? I mean, that just does not make sense to me. Well, well, when you talk to the mayor and his people, they say that a local municipal police force is going to be more responsive to the needs of the city. It's going to be more accountable to the mayor and the council. Uh, you're going to have less police uh, RCMP sergeants sitting at a desk and more cops out in the street fighting the bad guys. You're not buying that? 
Well, we can right now with the RCMP, we can have our own police board that provides direction to the police. Uh, Same thing with a municipal police force. It's no different. Uh, The mayor or council does not have control over um, the police. The police, and for good reason, the police are completely separate, and they report in through a police board, and that's the way Surrey can be set up with either the RCMP or a municipal police force. Okay, what about the time it's going to take to do this? One of the things that jumped out at me here with this news conference we just heard with Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, he kept using words like complex, a lot of work to do. This is going to be an iterative process. This is going to go in phases. I mean, it just sounds like there's just a ton of work to do here to accomplish this. The city had talked about a, a 2021 would be the start date of a local police force. Do you think they can hit that deadline? Well, I think that would be absolutely problematic. I mean, you can pick any deadline, and if it's too close, you can deliver a much an inferior product. If we're doing this, we need to do it right, and we need to do it in a timely, methodical way, and we need to make sure that we get it right. We only have one chance at this. There's no going back. It's got to be done right. It's not something we should be rushing through. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. That is Linda Annis, Surrey City Councillor. She's a member of the opposition party down there. D.C. government giving the green light today to Mayor Doug McCallum's plan to replace the RCMP with a local municipal police force. They're bringing in Wally Opal, the former attorney general, to oversee the transition process. Let's check in with another Surrey City Councillor now, Brenda Locke, formerly a member of McCallum's Safe Surrey Coalition. She had a split with the mayor there. She is now an independent councillor at Surrey City Hall. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Councillor, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Michael. What, What are your thoughts on the announcement today from the B.C. government that the green light has been given to the local police plan? Well, I think that um, it was bound to happen. I think the good part about this is, is that now the rubber will hit the road. Um, the mayor can no longer hide behind uh, the report, not defend it. So I think uh, Mr. Opal will will pull all the real information out of the report, which is important for the citizens to hear. Okay, do you have confidence in Wally Opal here to head up this transition? Uh, I absolutely have confidence in uh, Mr. Opal. I've actually worked with him in the past. Sure, yeah. And so I, uh, I look forward to, uh, to uh, him taking this project on. What, what, has been your, what have been your biggest concerns here about this whole process under uh, uh, Mayor McCallum? I think the biggest... Uh, it's been flawed from the beginning, to be honest with you, Mike. I mean, if you uh, remember back when we were screaming, please let the public know, please let council know, when do we have input? There was no consultation. So that has yeah. been a huge problem with the, the report. And then this absolute uh, sham of a, of a public consultation process that uh, went around the city and, and was just, it was just actually silly. Um, so I think those were the essences of the, the reason that I couldn't support it. But I think, you know, when you look at the report now, the, uh, the number of, of uh, people that are cut off the police mental health team is bad. The number of, yeah. of officers that are, that are canceled for Sophie's Place, that's horrible. Um, there's no end of that. So this will cause them to really take a look at the report and defend it. And they haven't defended it to date, even though issues have been raised. 
Okay, you've been very critical of the whole process here and the and the transition plan that has been rolled out by the city to this point, and you've just highlighted some of the reasons why. Do you? What about the whole the concept of getting rid of the RCMP, going to a municipal police force instead? Do you still support that idea in principle that that is a, a good thing that the city should do? Well, I supported right from the beginning the notion of reviewing the RCMP contract. So that, I think, um, I still do re- support that. Um, but I think it comes down to dollars and cents for everybody. Nobody is flush with money these days. And and we'll see what the new report um, brings out. So when when we're talking about dollars and cents, that's when the public is really going to it up straighter. I mean, we've been dealing with this through the summer and everybody's, you know, having their uh, sort of lazy, hazy days of summer. But when we really start to look at this coming in the fall, we're talking about the uh, deficits in the report, and there are very many. And then we add on the piece that talks about real money, real uh, dollars and cents to citizens, then the citizens are going to have to have their say. And I'm sure that Mr. Opal and Mr. Farnworth are going to require that. Well, it, it sounds like you're saying that maybe there's some more work to be done in consulting with the public and that if the numbers don't add up or if you're not confident in the, the supply of officers, that maybe the city shouldn't do this? Maybe or, I mean, do you think there's a scenario where you think the city should stick with the RCMP? Because it, it sounds to me like this train is leaving the station and you're going to get a municipal police force here no matter what. Yes, but I do think that the citizens have to make their statement. They, it's their money. It's they're the taxpayer, and it's their public safety that is at stake. This report is a less than in terms of what we have now. This report will not make us safer in Surrey, and I don't think anybody voted for that. Certainly, I didn't. Why? Um, Why will it not make people safer? The the way the plan is set up right now, why why would that make Surrey less safe, in your opinion? Well, there's almost 40 officers less than we have today. Um, We've talked about the mental health team, the police mental health outreach team getting cut in half. There's there's no end of pieces. On top of that, I think it's good that um, Mr. Opal is going to be looking at it because he'll be able to look at the pieces where the city of Vancouver and the VPD are actually conflicted in the report. They're asking Surrey to buy, they wrote the report, and then they're asking us to buy services from CPD. That's kind of uh, that needs to be reviewed a little bit. Do you think Surrey residents and taxpayers are in for uh, a bit of a reality check here uh, on the potential cost uh, of this going forward? I mean, the mayor has put forward a transition plan for a municipal police force that would, he says, is going to cost a shade under eleven percent more in terms of uh, the budget for police services. Do you think it's going to cost more than that? Oh, I absolutely think it's going to cost way more than 11%. And I can tell you, I have a house here. My kids have a house in Abbotsford. I just do the comparison on that. So that's a a local police to uh, our RCMP in Surrey, and there's there's no doubt about it. If the citizens choose that they want to pay, and and I would say in that comparison, it's about a 40% increase. If the the people of Surrey have... Yes, it is. And if the people in... Uh, Surrey feel they want to pay that big of a an increase in their cost, that's going to be their uh, consideration. So I look forward to hearing from residents of Surrey. I have I have tried to uh, 
to uh, let people know what I read through the report. But, you know, it's, it's 183 pages. It's not an easy read. Speaking to Surrey City Councilor Brenda Locke, uh, we, I just spoke earlier to, uh, to Councilor Linda Annis, who said that she thinks that this whole thing should be put to a referendum in the city of Surrey on whether they go to a, a local police force. What are your thoughts on that? Do you agree with her? I, I have no problem with the citizens of Surrey um, having a full referendum on this. I think it would be fair. I can tell you that from where I uh, sit, and, the, and I see a lot of people all the time, um, the public is not really that enthusiastic about this anymore. Uh, when they, mm. And they're very confused about it. So I absolutely think a referendum would be appropriate, and I think that... Once Mr. Opal and whatever this committee looks like uh, can really identify what the policing model is going to look like and the cost, because that's the biggie, um, then I think the public should have a referendum and have their say. Okay, well, the, the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth, just said earlier in this hour that he was asked that question directly, should there be a referendum on this in the city of Surrey? And he said no. Well, you know, I think that's a you know, that's going to be a citizen's rise up because, you know, this is not going to happen in the short two-year time frame that um, the uh, the mayor would like. And so, uh, you know, we may end up with a referendum at the next, maybe not a formal one, but certainly uh, one at the next uh, local government election. You, you mentioned a couple of specific concerns earlier with the, the transition plan to a local police force as it exists now and that is the scaling back of some mental health uh, mental health officers could you expand a little bit on that what what are some of your spe- what are some of the specifics okay. in the plan now that you're concerned about there okay so specifically now there's a police mental health outreach team there's uh, 20 officers there's two cars it's called car 67 in surrey uh, i think there's one similar in vancouver uh, and currently the 20 officers and we're looking at expanding that model because i sit um, with those folks that are that are on the team uh, and and uh, listen to what's going on in our city in terms of uh, mental health policing. So there's that. This report is saying they're going to reduce those numbers down to 11. That is a significant decrease. They also say they're going to partner with uh, service providers in Surrey. And I can tell you, Mike, Surrey has no capacity. When I was listening to uh, the reporting that's gone on around Oppenheimer Park, um, and we talk about uh, switching people into, uh, I think they said there was 110 units available there. There is nothing like that in Surrey. There is no capacity, not only from our service provider's point of view, from, from the manpower, there is no capacity in terms of housing availability. So we're talking apples and oranges when we talk about VPD and Surrey or Vancouver and Surrey. We're two different cities with a serious lack of social infrastructure in our city. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, I appreciate it. That is Surrey City Councillor Brenda Locke now an independent at Surrey City Hall. She was formerly part of Mayor Doug McCallum's Safe Surrey Coalition, but she had a split with the mayor. 
sits as an independent counselor there at Surrey City Hall there now. It's an iterative process. So we have received a request uh, from the city of Surrey uh, that they want to transition to a municipal police force. Uh, that is their jurisdiction, and that's what has been uh, green-lighted uh, by myself today. Um, there's been a lot of good work done uh, from the, uh, based on the plan that uh, Surrey has put forward. Um, my staff and their staff have uh, cooperated uh, fully. Uh, we're able to move forward um, in the next phase, and there's a lot more work to be done. And that's why this committee has been struck. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. That was the voice of Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General there. It is an interesting answer there. Do you remember what he was asked there, the original question? He said, is Surrey going to be safer? With the local police force. Don't you think that's a pretty simple question for a solicitor general? Shouldn't the answer be yes? Isn't that what he should say? Yes. The people of Surrey are going to be safer. Instead, he goes on this kind of rambling answer about it. This is an iterative process. You know, the thing is, I think that Farnworth and this government have never been fans of McCallum, the mayor of Surrey. I think they've been a little nervous and dubious about this whole plan to get rid of the RCMP from the first in the first place and go with the local police force. I don't think they've ever been thrilled with the idea at all. But I think they also came to the realization and conclusion that they can't stop it. That you've got a mayor and a council that was elected that made a clear promise this is what they're going to do. And it's the city's right to cancel the contract with the RCMP and go with a different police force. And I, I think the government probably just came to the conclusion they, they can't stand in the way of that. But clearly, they're not just going to go along and rubber stamp the plan that McCallum put forward at Surrey City Hall. So now they're bringing in Wally Opal, who always seems to show up. This guy... He's like Forrest Gump, the way he shows up all the time. You know, it's like all, all Wally's always... Always popping up here. Where's Wally? Here he is again. He's going to head the transition team now as they go forward with a local police plan. And another thing that jumped out at me today, listening very closely to what Farnworth's had to say here, is I think this is going to take a long time. You know, you heard it in that clip there. He kept saying this is an iterative process. This is going to be very complicated. This is going to go in phases. This is going to have a lot of work. I think it's going to take a lot of time. The original plan here was to have the local police force in control of Surrey in 2021, and it was supposed to be up and running before that in conjunction with the RCMP, but then 2021, April 1st, that would be the go-live date. I wonder if they can meet that deadline here the way that Farnworth's talking there. Here's another thing I'm thinking. This is going to cost a heck of a lot more than what McCallum said. You know, McCallum's been talking about uh, we can get this done for an 11% lift in the city's police budget. I don't think so. I always thought that was fantasy land stuff. And just judging by what Farnworth has had to say here, how complicated this is, how much work there is to do here, I just don't think they're going to be able to do it. I think the people of Surrey should uh, just hold on to your wallets here because I think it's going to cost a heck of a lot more. So the bottom line, though, is the provincial government today did give the green light to the plan to go to a local police force. They're putting Wally Opal in charge of it. But at the, the end of the day, McCallum, I guess, can celebrate that the provincial government has said yes 
to the idea and principle they're going to go to a local police force in the city of Surrey. They're going to get rid of the RCMP. There's a lot of people who want to keep the RCMP in Surrey, including my next guest, Ivan Scott. He's the head of the Keep the RCMP in Surrey campaign. He's been working hard signing up names on a petition. He joins me now. Ivan, it's nice to talk to you again. Nice to, nice to talk to you again, Mike. Always nice to talk to you. Thank you. Um, you must be disappointed today. Well, you know, you know I, I disappointed. I, I'm not too sure. I'm disappointed is uh, amazed and flabbergasted of, of actually what came through today. And I think it, I didn't listen to Farnworth uh, as you were talking to him there, but I did listen to your commentary afterwards. And I think you you've encapsulated this very, very well, uh, Mike. And uh, you know, one of the things that, that stuck out to me today is, is for some reason, you know, it's amazing that it seems to me as though. Um, Mr. McCallum is, is known as a bully, and it's amazing that he can bully the, I believe, bully the provincial government. McCallum you're talking about? Yes, sir. You, you think the Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum's a bully? Yes, absolutely. In the way that he's, he's uh, uh, done, you know, worked with everybody that's there, it's been his way or the highway, and I think uh, this is another part of his highway. Why do you want to keep the RCMP in Surrey? Oh, Mike, I want to keep the RCMP in Surrey because it's it's the, the one of the top police forces in the world, and to to suddenly just kick them out and bring in a sort of what I call an amateur police force uh, run by an amateur mayor is uh, is not something that I want to do. And I know that they, that uh, it's going to cost a heck of a lot more, as you put it in there. And I'm not too sure that it all complies with the with the BC Police Act, and I'm sure we're not going to be safer. There's no question in my mind that we won't be safer. Why do you say that? Why do you think you would not be safer? Well, he's, he's bringing in less. Uh, the 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 idea was that he was going to bring in 50 less police than what we have now. Yeah. And uh, you know, and, and they're going to be um, what they call constables as opposed to a, a proper organizational structure. They're not going to have the wherewithal to, to do anything. Most of the, the stuff that is required to, to run a place like this, and even if it takes 10, 15 years, they'll never get to the same standard as uh, our guys are, are at at the moment. How many names do you, have you collected on your petition to keep the RCMP in Surrey now? Well, we're, we're over the 20,000 mark, and we, you know, we're rushing ahead towards the 25, and, and you know, the amazing thing that, that uh, here, our petition, uh, the, the, the petition that the, the, um, the temples had, had six or seven names on it. Mine has got 20,000 names on it. I don't know why the, the province takes more credence in the six or seven num- names as opposed to the 20-plus thousand that we have. I find that absolutely amazing. Okay, the temples you're referring to are uh, some of the, the Sikh temples and the leaders in some of these temples that support the mayor had written a letter to Farnworth to say, get on with it and, and let's let's get going with this local police force. They said they wanted this local police force. I, I, I've been told, Ivan, I understand your son is an RCMP officer. Is that correct? My son is an RCMP officer. Yeah. Like uh, many other people, you know, people in, in Surrey that have uh, people, uh, family and sons and that sort of thing, and, and proudly uh, look after them and, and these people look after us. So, yes, I'm, pr- I'm proud to say that I do have one in the in the. Uh, RCMP, yes. Yeah, is he based in Surrey? He's not affected by this, uh, funnily enough, Mike. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing it because I think it's the wrong thing to do. What do you think the morale is? I mean, when you talk to your son, so your, your son is not, your son is not, is not stationed in Surrey, is that correct? He's, 
No, he, you know, he is stationed in Surrey, but he's not part of the Surrey detachment. Oh, I see. Okay. All right. Um, when you talk to him and you talk to other Surrey RCMP officers, what what is the sense you get from them? Like the average cop in Surrey now, an RCMP cop, are they demoralized? Are they feeling down? Are they feeling like underappreciated? What do they tell you? They're, they're actually devastated. Well, I think devastated because when I've ever asked these these people, you know, the, Mike, these are people that have been here for years and years and years. They love the, the city. They like the people that are here. They think that they're doing a good job for us. They want to do a good job for us. Their fathers, their mothers, their, uh, you know, their kids are at school. They have their mortgages here. They're, they're committed here. And to, to be like this, I think they're very disappointed in, uh, in what, uh, what is happening here. They'd like to stay. But couldn't they just join the Surrey Municipal Police Department? Why would you join somebody who doesn't uh, appreciate you? Well, maybe you make more money. Like, these municipal police forces make more money than the Mounties, don't they? They would have joined the municipal police forces a long time ago. Why would they have not if that was money that was the issue? Okay. Um, Mike, one thing I want, to, I want to just ask over here. I'm yeah. not quite sure what this statement means. It's, it seems to be completely ambiguous. Does it mean to say that it's a fait accompli that we will get a Surrey Police Department or is it to we, uh, that, that the, 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 the provincial government will look at it and finally make a decision again at a later stage whether it uh, makes sense or not? No, the, the statement says that the provincial government has given the green light to a local police force in the city of Surrey. The yes, green, what does the that green actually light. mean? Well, what what does that actually mean? It means they're approving. They're approving a, a local police force in the city of Surrey. In terms of right? the plan that uh, McCallum put forward? Or well, it does, no, it doesn't say that. It says that Wally Opal will now have a transition uh, committee, and Farnworth says there's a lot more work to do. So that could mean that the plan could change. That's my read of it. My, my understanding and read of this is the provincial government is given the green light to a local police force in the city of Surrey, but I also think that maybe some of the details in McCallum's plan could change here, like maybe the price tag, maybe the number of officers. Uh, yes, and and then right. that would be that that would be in complete contrast to what he actually said at the beginning and uh, his justification in getting it put through. I mean, if you say that you can do something for ten dollars and at the end of the day it comes out at fifty dollars, um, what, what's the, what's what's wrong with that picture? I mean, that's that's lies. All right. Well, thank you, for, Ivan, for coming. You're not giving up the fight. I, I imagine you're you're going to continue to fight to keep this, the RCMP in Surrey. Fair to say. As they say in politics, I think it's not over till it's over, Mike. And uh, you know, we we'll continue to move ahead with our endeavours, and we'll be appealing to a higher power than the than Mr. Farnworth, and that's the electorate. Because at the end of the day, the electorate will will make the decision on whether they they think that this is a, a good decision or a bad decision. And uh, I think some somewhere along the line. Uh, the politicos will pay the price because of that. Ivan, thank you for coming on today. You're very welcome, Mike. I appreciate your input. Sure. That is Ivan Scott. He is the head of the Keep the RCMP in Surrey campaign, saying that it ain't over till it's over, as you heard him say there. Uh, they are going to keep fighting and keep collecting signatures on that petition. He's got 25,000 names on a petition to keep the RCMP in Surrey.
couple of weeks ago down in Washington State driving through there. And it's interesting when you go down to America, and especially in Washington State, and just like here, you'll see marijuana stores down there. So you see a number of cannabis uh, shops uh, selling cannabis down there because, of course, cannabis is legal in Washington State, just like it is here now. But if you think you can take pot across the border, well, think again. Like most people know that. Most people know that even though marijuana is legal in Canada, it's legal in Washington State. If you try to go across the border with some dope, you're asking for a lot of trouble. And there's signs right at the border. Don't try to do that. Don't be taking any weed across the border because you could get in a big jam there check this out though a canadian woman now faces a potential lifetime ban after she got caught at the u.s border with cbd oil now cbd oil is the non-psychoactive product of cannabis that a lot of people will use to treat things like uh painful side effects from uh, from a disease or injury or something or as a sleep aid they say it doesn't get you high, especially in low doses that most people use. So it's not like uh, bud or hash or something like that or an edible marijuana product. CBD is a, a different thing, but she still got caught with it at the border, according to a report from CBC News. It's unnamed woman uh, was fined 500 bucks. Uh, she was denied entry into the United States and now potentially a lifetime ban from going into the United States for CBD oil, not just weed, just CBD oil. What do people need to know about going across the border like this? How many people are getting caught like this? And how can you make sure that something like this doesn't happen to you? Let's check in with uh, Len Saunders now. He's an immigration lawyer uh, based just across the border in Blaine, Washington. Hi, Len. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. This is an interesting story to me because a lot of people might think that, well, CBD oil would be okay going across the border, but obviously not. Exactly. It's still a derivative from the marijuana plant. And so right. under the eyes of U.S. immigration, it's as bad as having cannabis with you at the port of entry. Okay. How many how many people are getting stopped like this and, get, and getting into a lot of trouble here for, for trying to go across the border with pot? Or any or any well, type of not, other variety of cannabinoid. It's not it's not everybody, but like today alone, I've seen two cases. The wow. lady who you're talking about, right in front of me right now, I have her documents when she was denied entry, and another gentleman uh, contacted me uh, from Japan, Canadian, who flew into SeaTac Airport a week and a half ago. The exact same thing happened to him. Issued a five hundred dollar fine for having CBD oil. So these are identical cases at different ports of entry, um, which have happened to Canadians who have now been denied entry for life. Okay, what happened to this lady with the CBD oil? We're not using her name here. Can you just tell me the details, though, of roughly what happened to her at the border? Sure. So what she did was, um, originally I thought she actually came through Blaine, which is right near my office, but it was actually Point Roberts. So right. about a week or so, a week ago, actually, no, sorry, it was on Friday, she was um, just entering just to, I don't know, enjoy the weekend in Point Roberts, and uh, they found some CBD oil, a 50-milligram bottle. Um, she admitted that it was hers. She didn't think that it was illegal. They uh, did a sworn statement under oath so that she admitted that it was hers. They then issued her a $500 fine and basically turned her north and said in order to come back to the U.S., you now have to apply for a waiver. 
Okay, what does that entail, applying for a waiver? Well, a waiver is, um, it takes a while to get, a few months, uh, to actually do the application, get it approved, plus the fees. The U.S. government charges $585. She'll probably be issued, rarely do they deny them, um, she'll probably be issued a six-month or maybe a year waiver. And then after that, usually they bump it up two years, three years, eventually five but unless they change the law, she will need a waiver for the rest of her life because she has a controlled substance violation at a U.S. port of entry. Okay, so when the waiver expires, she'll have to go and apply another one for another one? Exactly. So in a wow. case like hers, because she's retained me, and so I'm already starting to work on her waiver, um, once it gets approved, usually six months in advance, I'll tell clients you need to get a new criminal record check, even though she has no criminal record, letter of remorse for her immigration violations, of having CBD oil on her, even though she didn't know it was a violation, letters of reference, proof of employment. It's, it's quite a process of going through every time you need a new waiver. Okay, according to the CBC uh, story on, on this one, Len, apparently she says that a Border Patrol officer there asked her if she had any, quote, leafy greens on her person. I don't know why a Border Patrol officer would say something like that, leafy greens. And uh, she said the officer did not use the word cannabis. And she says she said no, she didn't have any leafy greens because she thought that is, you know, bud, marijuana, dried marijuana flowers, uh, and it, not CBD like she had in her backpack. Isn't that kind of weird? I mean, do, do officers, uh, Border Patrol officers on the American side typically ask kind of tricky trick questions like that? Um, not really. Like maybe yeah. it was just, you know, a lingo that he said, but you know, I've been in the border before where they ask people this and usually it's not somebody older. It's somebody in their late teens, early twenties, and they kind of profile who they're going to ask. But you know, whether you have leafy greens on you or cannabis oil, anything that's related to the marijuana plant seems to still be a grounds of inadmissibility in the eyes of U.S. immigration law and leads to these lifetime bans. Right, right. Even though marijuana is legal in Washington State. Where I sit right now in Blaine, it's legal. Where you sit up in B.C., it's legal. The problem is it's a U.S. border. It's still illegal. And many Canadians know that, but they don't know that these derivatives, whether it's gummy bears like edibles or other types of cannabis products, are illegal. Everything cannabis-related is a kiss of death at a U.S. port of entry for Canadians seeking entry. Oh, man. Speaking to Len Saunders, he's an immigration lawyer in Blaine, Washington. I've also heard, Len, that sometimes a U.S. border official could ask you, have you ever smoked marijuana or used marijuana in the past? And that could be grounds for not entry if you say yes. Is that true? Exactly. So that was a common case I saw prior to legalization. They don't ask that question as frequently now because the Americans know that they can't deny entry to a Canadian who's used it legally in Canada. If someone admits mm. to using it before legalization, they can still be barred, and I've seen those cases, not a lot, but enough. But this is the new area where I see people running into problems entering the U.S. who unknowingly have some sort of cannabis products on them. Okay, what if you work in the marijuana industry? Like, let's say you're a Canadian on our side of the border and you work in a legal marijuana store, you go, you go across the border of the United States and a Border Patrol officer says, what do you do for a living? What are you supposed to say? Well, that's fine. So U.S. Customs and Border Protection issued a memo just prior to legalization in mid-October in Canada saying that if you 
were strictly involved with the Canadian industry after legalization, you were okay. But if you're, let's say, trying to do business down here in the cannabis industry, once again, that's a grounds of inadmissibility and a lifetime bar. Okay. If someone gets into a jam like this, you mentioned the potential for a lifetime ban from the United States. I think it would be a terrible thing to, for, to befall someone. Um, how, how common is that to get a lifetime ban, or can most people get these waivers, as you've described? Well, it is a lifetime ban, and then you get a waiver to overcome that. So if someone gets a lifetime ban like this lady did, then my goal is to get her a waiver which overcomes that, but it's not a permanent waiver. They're only issued for a limited amount of time to overcome your permanent grounds of inadmissibility. So what would your advice be to people? Well, I guess it probably works both. Does it work both ways, by the way? Like if you have Americans crossing the border into Canada, can they suffer similar consequences if they've got weed on them or... So even though I'm Canadian, I'm not a Canadian immigration lawyer, but my understanding is you can't take products north. I think all the Canadian officers do is seize it. I don't think they issue lifetime bans to Americans. So they're less harsh on uh, individuals entering Canada versus the United States. Okay, has this been a big uptick in your business here now with people getting (laughs) a jam like this at the border? Absolutely. It, it yeah. seems like it never goes away. And the Canadian government has done a really poor job in warning Canadians. Other than the media getting these stories out, the Canadian government has been very silent. And when I spoke to the Canadian Senate about a year and a half ago, I told them this was my concern, was Canadians unknowingly bringing products to the U.S. resulting in lifetime buyers after they purchased it legally in Canada. Okay, so what would your advice be to people here? Certainly, obviously, don't, do not try to cross the border with any type of cannabis product, even if you think it's like, you know, something safe or innocuous like CBD oil. Don't do it. Absolutely. Do yeah. not bring anything. You can purchase it legally down here. Any Canadian over the age of 21 can purchase it legally in Washington State. You just have to be 21. They don't ask for your citizenship. So if you want to use it while you're in the U.S., buy it down here, but buy leave here. it down here. Right. Okay, good advice. Thank you, Len. Thanks, Mike. Okay, thanks for coming on. That's Len Saunders. He is an immigration lawyer. He's based in Blaine, Washington, talking about the case of a Canadian woman facing a lifetime ban at the border for crossing the border with CBD oil.